The Old Testament reading can be found in the Church Bible on page 121. Page 121. And it's Leviticus. And we're reading from chapter 19, the first two verses. And then we're going on to verses 15 to 18. Leviticus, Leviticus 19, chapter one, uh, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Verse 15 onwards. Do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbour fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbour's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbour, frankly, so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. The second reading from the New Testament is on page 991. And it's Matthew 22, verses 34 to 46. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about Messiah? Whose son is he? Son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. So last week, uh, Sean Campbell uh, gave us a challenge. One of the things he said was that we should be able to give an account of the faith that we have when we are asked that we should be able to reason out what we do by way of good works so that as we do those works, they can be accompanied, uh, when appropriate, by the good news of the gospel. And often it's the case that people say to me, well, you know, at home or at work, uh, someone challenges them about the reasonableness of their faith. They come up with some scientific or social or, or rational objection to believing. And, uh, and they say to me that they can't think of the answer at the time, and it's very frustrating. 
I'm sure there's many of us know that kind of experience. Well, throughout chapter 22 of Matthew's Gospel, there have been people contending with Jesus uh, and looking for ways not to believe in him. So they've been trying to argue out him out of who he's claiming to be. And the Pharisees, uh, well, the Sadducees have a go first, and then the Pharisees come along, those leaders of the Jewish religious people. And they test him with questions about paying taxes, uh, about the resurrection of the dead, about uh, law, about religion. They come at him from all sorts of directions. And of course, Jesus wins the day. The last verse of chapter 22 says, No one dared ask him any more questions from that day on. See, every time he gave them an answer that they couldn't question, and then right at the end he gives them a question that they can't answer. Jesus knows the truth. So how did he do it? And how can we be better equipped to answer the critics who tell us that we can't rationally and reasonably reasonably believe what we believe? And the answer comes in three things that Jesus does. I wonder if you could push the the down button. This seems to have... um, Oh, there we are. Thank you. Uh, first of all, he, uh, he stands on the word of God. In verse 36, he's asked the question about which is the greatest commandment. And uh, as we have seen, at least in part, he answers from uh, the book of Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy, and later on, he, when he asks the question, he uses Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, and, and so on. See, Jesus takes his stand on the Word. He embodies the Word of God. He's the living Word of God. What he did in life revealed and fulfilled the the Word of God. All that was written in the Scriptures. And, And if that's true for Jesus, well, we are in him. And it's true also then for us. We are people who in Christ begin to grow and live and develop as we live out God's word in our lives. So, there is, as we know, the whole sweep of the Bible story. Uh, That's what scripture gives us. And we know that it takes us from uh, creation to the recreation or the new creation of all things, from the beginning uh, to the end. And of course, the beginning The new creation, the end, the new creation, begins when Jesus is raised from the dead. That's when it begins and we step into that resurrection life as we come to faith with him. That's what the end is all about, the resurrection and the new life that comes as a consequence. But we are in him. And so what we do is take what is at the end, that new resurrection life, and we put it in the middle. And we live that resurrection, kingdom life now, in our time, in the world. We bring the future to be a present reality. 
That's what church is all about. But because the kingdom come won't happen unless we know what the kingdom is like. Unless we live out those things that we read of in the Bible. So the power of living out this resurrection life comes now, even before the end, when there's a connection between the whole Bible story and my story. When my life is connected with the life that Scripture teaches us about in all its fullness. That's the transforming power that comes when that connection is made. When something that we've read in Scripture begins to change and challenge and shape and mark our lives. And it's when it makes a mark on your life that it does it for you. And the more connections that we make with the great story of Scripture, the great Bible story, the more empowered and more powerful we are in living out the kingdom life of God. And the more people who live out these, uh, who, who are touched, the more powerful the church becomes as we make those connections with the great story of God. So when many people in the church are making the connections, finding their lives changed, and are empowered by the whole Bible story, then together we live out our story. We have something to say to our community in which we are placed. And every step along the way, at every point along the way, Jesus is making those connections. The great sweep of history that God has set in motion is making the connections in his life that he takes that story of a scripture and brings it to fulfilment. And so when he's challenged about what he's doing and why he's doing it, he has a firm foundation. He's standing on the word of God. And they couldn't find fault in him. And if we are to call ourselves Christians, then we too give ourselves to studying and reading the Bible the whole Bible story. Knowing the beginning, knowing the end, bringing it to life as we live it day by day so that God's written word becomes in us a living word. Because reading the Bible is what we do. Learning the ways of God together is what we are about. And there's plenty of daily Bible readings, uh, notes, you know them, that, uh, and the online helps and apps that send you a message every morning to help you do that. And it's why we here are trying to teach uh, the Scripture, both in the sermons and at other times, on the 10th of January next year, not far away, on a Wednesday morning, Pat Kennett is going to be our own Pat Kennett is going to be teaching uh, uh, eight series, eight sessions on the book of Judges. Very apposite. Wisdom in a changing world. It's, uh, it's a book where issues of borders and governance and getting along with neighbours is all worked out. And Pat is a very experienced Bible teacher and so it's going to be worth coming to. So come to it. 
if you can, if you're free. And look out for the notices. See, because being a people of the word of God is what marks us out as kingdom people. And reading the Bible is the first step to applying it. Unless we know what's in the book, we will never be truly Christian people. Secondly, Jesus lives by the way of love. What is the greatest commandment, he's asked in verse 36? Well, it's a fair question. The Jews had uh, 613 commandments in the law. Uh, 248 of them were positive commands. You shall do this. And 365, one for every day of the week, were negative commands. You shall not do that. And uh, they knew that really that no one could keep all of these commands. That no one could remember all these commands, let alone keep them all. So, so they divided them up into uh, heavy commands and light commands. And the heavy ones were the important commands. The light ones were the, well, unimportant, less important commands. And, uh, and what was supposed to happen if two commands came to a clash, if there was a, a contradiction between the two commands, then you found out which was the heaviest command and you obeyed that one and you didn't have to worry about the lighter command. That's how the system worked. So that when they were in conflict, you could resolve the conflict. Therefore, to know which was the most important command, which was the heaviest command meant that that's the one you don't break and therefore you won't get it wrong. That's the most important thing. That's why Jesus was asked that question. Well, the problem with thinking about the commands like that is that they don't stand individually. If you break one command, you break them all. That's what James tells us. And it's also what the Old Testament tells us. Be holy as I am holy. If you break one, you've broken them all. Light or heavy, it doesn't matter. So it's a fruitless exercise to ask, which one shouldn't I break? But Jesus doesn't really give a command so much as an invitation when he answers the question. It's an invitation to step into the life of God, to start living out the very nature of God in the world. And he says there, love your neighbour as yourself. Sorry, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That quote from Deuteronomy. Love God. That's the invitation. And love him with everything you have. Heart, soul, mind, intentions, emotions, will. An answer that takes a person beyond what they can achieve to having an attitude of love that loves God in everything. It goes beyond ethics into relationship. It's not about what I do. It's about who I love. And then if there's an attitude of love for God, then love for neighbour will be present. 
So the second command, the one we had read from Leviticus, comes in verse 39. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love for God overflows to love for neighbor. And all the law and all the commands hang on these two sayings. They leave nothing out. They bring us to the fullness of living in the kingdom of God. Loving our neighbor is where love for God will be seen. But there's a deeper meaning that we need to see in this little bit of text. Because the Pharisees knew these words by heart because they said them every day. The Deuteronomy uh, verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, is the Shema. The Shema prayer that they said every morning to remind them to get their hearts right before God. But the Pharisees were opposing Jesus because he claimed to be God. See, they couldn't believe that it was right to worship a mere man, a a creature of the world. You can't worship a creature as God because that would be idolatry. So they were out to kill Jesus instead for what they considered blasphemy. But in that, that in itself meant their hearts were empty. They didn't love God at all. Because if you did love God, you would love Jesus, whether you thought he was deluded and misguided or not. So by definition, they were refusing to love God. They were refusing to obey the law that they knew by heart. They refused to live the way of love. And one of the false conceptions about Christian, I'm sure it's been said to you, about Christian faith, is that it's all about the rules that prevent you doing things. You can't enjoy yourself. You don't do this and don't do that and don't do the other thing. Well, above all else, Christianity should never be regarded in that sense. And if we've made it that way, we've got to repent of doing it that way. Because Christianity, if there is a rule, if there is a command, is about freedom, about the freedom to love. Freedom to live in the way of love is all we are commanded to do. Love God. Love your neighbour. One of the great and wonderful things about Meatgate Church is, is how well it does show a high degree of love to our neighbourhood. And it's costly in terms of money and time and human resources, but it's kingdom stuff. You know, sometimes when I talk to other clergy about the work that we do here, I talk of there being two Meadgate churches. There's the Meadgate church that meets on a Sunday and everything that's attendant with that that, that happens and all those good things. And it's the powerhouse and the resource, the spiritual resource for the Meadgate Church that meets and, and joins in the week, where people will come from all over the place with all stages of faith and none to access the resources and the services and the, the good things that are going on here, where, where people's lives are made better 
because there's love shown in this place. And I tell them how I spend much of my time with Meadgate Church that wouldn't be recognised as Meadgate Church on any role, but the people are here. And we're building a kingdom community where people are getting better and in the process being drawn closer to the kingdom of God. But the truth is that if we, if we were not worshipping God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, we wouldn't be able to be doing those things in the week. But it's also the true that if we weren't engaging in the love of our neighbours, we wouldn't be loving God at all. So there are several ways in which you can do that. We, we need some volunteers. It's in the notice sheet. We need some volunteers on Wednesday the 8th of November in the afternoon to clean the soft play material uh, equipment uh, for its six monthly clean. And if you could do, help us do that for one afternoon, please come and see me. Or if you could cook on a Wednesday lunchtime, maybe once a month or, or so, for Connect Lunch at the parade, come and see me. Or if you can occasionally help leading a young person's group for uh, an evening in the month, uh, maybe once or twice a month, see me or see Steph. Or if you can help out at the Thursday Connect tea time events where we feed the families, come and see me. Or if you want to volunteer for the coffee shop where that love is made known, come and see me. Loving God with all your heart, soul and mind means engaging with the people of the neighbourhood in love. Thirdly, Jesus widens the view of who he is. His, his critics see him as too small. He can't be God because he is just a man. So he poses them a question. Having answered all their questions, he poses one for himself. This psalm, Psalm 110, that he quotes there in verse 44, it was understood to be a messianic uh, a psalm, a, a psalm that looked for the coming of Messiah because only the Messiah would be qualified to sit down at God's right hand. So clearly it's a messianic uh, psalm. And the Messiah, of course, was believed to be God's man on earth who was going to usher in the kingdom of God uh, for Israel. And there were all sorts of speculation at the time as to who that was going to be. Well, they knew at least, that he would be a human being, a descendant of the great King David himself, to be known as the son of David. So Jesus asks them there in verse 42, whose son is the Messiah? And, uh, and they say, the son of David. Quite right. And it sets up this question about the Psalm's opening line, the Lord said to my Lord. Now the problem is, with, as we've got it in the New Testament, is that uh, the meaning is a bit lost in the translation uh, and in the way that the words are written. So you, you kind of have to go back to see it at Psalm 110 in the Old Testament. Uh, 
And if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll notice that the first Lord, the Lord, is written in lower uh, in capitals, but small capitals. Do you see that? Yes, Timmy. Yes? Right. So every time you see that in the Old Testament, you know that in the original Hebrew that it's written, that's where they used the name of God. Yahweh. The name that God uh, revealed to Moses. That mysterious, unpronounceable name if you're a Jew. Y-H-W-H. Yahweh. God's divine name. So that's written there. I like that in the Old Testament. So you know that this is the divine name of God. And the psalm, in the psalm, the Lord God, the Lord God Almighty is addressing the one who is greater than David, but who is nevertheless a human Messiah. So it's the Lord said to my Lord. Do you see what I mean? See how that works? The Lord, Yahweh, God, said to my Lord, who is the Messiah in human form. But the problem that the Pharisees had is that sons always referred to their fathers as Lord, not the other way round. So, David, who wrote this psalm, by rights should have been referring to one of his ancestors, one who went before him. But actually he was writing for one who was coming after him. And it's a conundrum that the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't work out. Jesus asks them there in verse 45, how can David, who's the generational father of a human messiah, yet call him Lord. And the answer that Jesus wants us to see is that David is actually pointing to someone who is at one and the same time both human and divine. As a man, Messiah is David's son. As God, he is David's Lord. So Jesus, you see, he widens their view of who he is. They see him like this, and Jesus says, no, I'm like that. He doesn't deny anything that they have believed and lived by, but he takes it to an altogether higher level. See, the the human Messiah was expected to liberate the people of Israel from the Roman oppression and that they would live in securing their borders. Well, Jesus is there to liberate the whole of humanity from the oppression of sin and death. Not just the Lord of David, not just the Lord of the world, but the Lord of the whole cosmos. So you see, if we are sent off track by something that a skeptic says... It's because we haven't got a big enough picture of who Jesus is. See, it's as if, when we hear them, it's as if they've got a better idea than us. But, but think of it this way. If they can't offer you a better prospect, if they can't offer you a better God or a better hope, then they're not offering you anything. 
Anyone who says to you, you can't believe what you believe, but doesn't offer you anything better, is not to be listened to. See, if you, if you can offer me a better Jesus than the one I've got, then I'll have him. If you can offer me a better hope than the one I have, then I'll take it. No one has yet. If you can offer me a better story than the one I can tell you, I will believe it. But no one has ever told me a better story than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't suppose they ever will tell me a better story. Jesus is high over all. So don't settle for anything less. So, if you want to withstand the naysayers and the people who criticise your belief, read your Bible and know where the Bible story connects with your life. Live by the way of love in all things and lift your eyes to Jesus in all things who is through all things and above all things. Father, we pray that in the denseness of this text, you may firmly ground us in the knowledge and power of your love by your Holy Spirit that in us all the fullness of the measure of Christ may be seen and known in the world and that through your church you may glorify your name. Amen.